We're in a series called The Engaged. Our theme for the year is Engage. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about who Jeremy is here in a moment. But there's something that I wanted to share just to start it off, and then, and then we're going to sh- shift into this conversation we're going to have. Ezekiel 47. There are no notes on the screen, so you're going to have to write this down if you have notes. If you take notes, write it down. If you don't take notes, write this down. Ezekiel 47, it talks about the temple of the Lord, and it talks about how um, God takes, this angel takes God, or Ezekiel to this temple, and he walks him around, and, and, and if you read Ezekiel, God shows him all kinds of things. Um, I always say Ezekiel is the prophet with a twitch, because <laughs> every time God came and said, hey, I want to show you something, Ezekiel went like, oh no, what are you asking me to do now, right? Uh, uh, but he sees the temple, and there's a river flowing, and when it comes out of the temple, uh, it, it's, it's not deep, and then it becomes deeper, deeper, and then to the point where it was so wide you couldn't swim across it. And it says at the end of the text in Ezekiel, Son of man, do you see this? Son of man, do you see this? And it's an interesting statement. Of course he can see it, he's there. But he's not asking you, can you see? He's like, do you see what I'm getting at? You know, and there are three types of people. There are people who don't, they're deaf and blind. Logic does not make sense to them. That is though, that, those are the people living in the world. The king, they, they just, logic, like you look at them and it makes no logical sense. And you're like, it's just logical to see it that way. So when you see abortion, you see it a certain way. And there are people that just don't see it that way. And you don't understand why they can't see it. So you get angry at them rather than recognize you would see it that way, except for the fact that God has opened your eyes and your ears, and you can see it, yes. right? So we don't hate people who are in prison or thinking. We pray for them when we, we love them and we embrace them. And, but then there are people who see and they hear, but they don't obey. And then, and then there are the, the obedient. And the Lord was really speaking to me, if we're going to engage, we need to, we need to, I, I was really thinking we need to get in the river. And there was a town in Mississippi called the Little Gulf. It was the cousin to New Orleans. And it was on the Mississippi River. And there was a man who bought this city. He had a lot of money, bought this city, named it Rodney, Mississippi. And over time, because of the cotton industry, this town became a very prosperous city in the mid-1800s. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And... They noticed something over time that the river started moving away from the city because that's what the Mississippi did and on occasion it still does do. It moves. But instead of doing something to try to prevent that or try to encourage it to stay the path, they underestimated the importance of the river. They underestimated it. Today, by the 1900s even, by the 1900s, that city became a ghost town. Today, it's still there. There's one road in, one road out, a dilapidated Presbyterian church that is there as a sign of what happens when you get too far away from the river. John, uh, you, you read this in John uh, 7, 37 through 39. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festivals, Jesus stood up and said with a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. It says, by this he meant the spirit whom, 
whom those who believed in him were later to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Like, we can look at the image in Ezekiel 47, and, and it was a river flowing from the temple. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus... And there are rivers of living water that are supposed to flow from us. And we're called to engage the surrounding around. Like our life should be casting or broadcasting. There should be, it's not about getting into the river. It's about being that temple that releases the river of God all around us where we bring life to the world around us and God's wanting us to engage in the kind of lifestyle that's a life-giving lifestyle, okay? And um, that's for all the people in the room that said, I can't go to church and not have a sermon. You just got a little five-minute sermon right there so that we can now have the conversation that I felt like the Lord wanted to do. Somebody say amen. Okay, thank you for that message. Now let's, let's make this, oh yeah, there's one more thing that I need to add to this too before we get into this discussion. And, and this is a word from the Lord that he gave me this last week. Change comes with our engagement. Many Christians want to change in their life without having to engage with changing habits. This is the statement, the Lord is very clear. They hope that God will just feel bad for them and do his God stuff on them. God says, go into my word, pray, fast. And we want change. We want to experience the greatness. We want joy. We want peace. We want to experience the love of God. But we're like, just do your God stuff on me. And he said, I've done everything you need, but you have to engage and what I've asked you, you got to engage in the word. You got to engage in prayer. You have to engage in things that, that literally connects you to what God's already done. You are not going to change if you don't engage. That's like saying, I want to lose weight. Now do your God stuff on me and shrink it. Like, right? We're suckers for every weight pill out there. We're we wear those vibrating belts. What are you doing? I'm vibrating the fat cells out of me right now. You know, I'm... I'm using sonic stuff to, you know, to dec- we'll do anything just because I, if you want to lose weight, engage in a better diet. Stop eating at Wendy's. I always pick on McDonald's, so I picked another one. And I'm certainly not, pick- I'm not going to say the ones I like. <laughs> You'll never say, hear me say Cane's. That, that's just fine. That's healthy for you. All right. Are, are you hearing what I'm saying? Like, you, change will not come if you don't engage in the, in the habit that actually releases. So when you get in the word, yeah, you're saved by grace, right? But you have to still believe. You got to engage. How do you do that? By believing and confessing. So you say, well, God, God's, he does it with us, right? So you, you're asking, well, how does that relate? Well, one, you need to begin to pray. You need to go on missions trips, it, it will change you. You start tithing. You start reading. The, you start doing those. Th- you're going to see the power of God working through those engagements that you get involved in. And, and you'll see the success in doing that. Now, you may be asking, how does that relate to why Jeremy's here? It may not relate at all. I just felt like I needed to share it. 
Here, Jeremy, um, um, who is Jeremy Stein? You know, I met him when we were in Turkey. Um, it's just incredible thinker, really. Um, He's with the Center of Holy Land Studies who uh, we're going to Israel in September and many of you are like, well, it's too dangerous. Well, we're going to talk about some of that today. Uh, Jeremy, tell us about who you are, where you came from, where all this started, what happened. So thank you for, oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, are you not on there? It says I'm on. It says he's on. It yeah, it says he's on, but it's all right, not on. All right, there we there go. Otherwise, I can talk really loud. Those <laughs> who came to Turkey know that one. You got to talk a lot, so we'll just <laughs> let you talk. So I'm Jeremy Stein. I was a pastor before I started working inside the lands of the Bible, and I went on a trip to Israel um, when I was a pastor, and I realized when I was there that the Bible is still speaking to us in such a unique and different way when we go to the land and we engage inside the text. And I absolutely, from just being in the place and seeing where God's word came alive and even where God came down as flesh, made me change my entire perspective on God's word. And I became like addicted to it. I absolutely fell in love with it. And when I came back from that trip, I decided, you know what, this is, although I'm called to preach, I'm called to, to, to spread the gospel, my, my desire is to get those who don't understand the power of making a pilgrimage to the lands of the Bible and engaging in God's word possible so that people can engage in God's word and fall in love with it the way that I have. And so over time, I've spent my the last 10 years just absolutely falling more and more in love with God's text each and every day and engaging in things that make us even closer to understanding God's word. I've engaged in archaeology, become an archaeologist. Uh, I, I've engaged in textual studies and everything like that in the hopes that people would fall in love with the land that I fell in love with so that they would result in falling in love with God's word. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, you're married? I am. I have an amazing wife uh, back home in Springfield, Missouri. And she does what? She is a dental hygienist and a stage actress. Yeah, so, so you married a movie star. I did, I did. Uh, that's good. <laughs> and you got some good news. Yes, yes. We were expecting our, we found out about 10 days ago, we we're expecting our very first child. Uh, after uh, three years of infertility and trying and praying, it is an exciting, yeah. exciting week for us. It's, it's, it was also interesting. Um, you were telling me about your habits or your hobbies. <laughs> I like to ride motorcycle, play golf, and you like to study God's word that's that's really made me feel great <laughs> now actually you you were talking about um there's a couple of things one you were talking about you kind of got addicted to going to israel I right that you started did. charging these trips <laughs> i wouldn't suggest it and dave ramsey hates me for it but uh when i first fell in love with god's word i was so in love with with god's word inside the land that i just started taking out credit cards just so i could go and study it in israel in turkey in greece everywhere where the bible took place i needed to be there to see the place because it helped me just reaffirm my faith and just Give me a passion and a fire to just preach it that much louder and that much more fervently. And and what'd your wife think of that? She thought I was nuts. We weren't married yet, but she <laughs> thought I was nuts. She told me. I remember that conversation. <laughs> And then you have a hobby that you're doing, which is a, a kind of a movie thing. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm working on a, on a 
TV series right now that Sony and MGM are putting out as a historical consult on Cyrus the Great. And it's not necessarily a biblically based uh, thing. It's focused on history. But for me, it's really exciting because history and the Bible, they come together. And especially in the life of Cyrus the Great, we find him first talked about in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, where he's prophesied that he is going to be, as they call it, a Messiah figure. He's not the Messiah. That's Jesus. But he's somebody who rescues and redeems Israel at a time. And a few hundred years later, when Israel is sent into captivity by the Babylonians uh, and, and they're brought to Babylon, it's Cyrus the Great who rises up and frees them from Babylonian captivity and tells them to go back to the land of Israel and to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and to worship God as they saw uh, fit. And so for me, it's exciting to be able to, to, to bring to light to the public this individual who plays a huge role, not just in history, but in what God was doing for his people and how he was building his kingdom through history itself. So this refers back to, if you remember the story, the handwriting on the wall where they, they were having, they had brought items from the temple of God in and they're having this really an orgy party and, and in God, the handwriting on the wall says you've been weighed and, and, uh, uh, and, and then the next, then Cyrus the Great comes in and defeats the Babylonians. It also plays into what we talked about on Christmas Eve because, um, because Cyrus the Great really kind of was endeared to the Jews, mm -hmm. and they influenced the, the Persians almost more than the Persians. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they become the, the ones that start bringing who, the identity of who God, the God of Israel, of Isaac and Jacob is, to to. Uh, uh, to the Persians, and the Persians begin getting interested in it. You have this foundation of people that we see inside the New Testament called God-fearers, and they're people who, although they're outside of the original promise, they identify who God is, and they start falling in love with him and studying him. We see Cornelius, for example, is one of those inside the book of Acts, and you have the Magi who we don't know what their relationship exactly was with, with God was, but we understand that they were actively seeking the fulfillment of God's promises all the way back from Genesis, the one who would come and be king of the world, the king of the Jews, through the stars, waiting for God to speak to them. Not any of their Babylonian or Assyrian or Persian gods, but the God of Israel. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So I'm going to start with an easy question. It's pretty easy. We'll just get this out of the way, and then we can move on, but it's pretty easy. Um, when is Jesus coming back? <laughs> I just figured you'd know that. I absolutely do not know, nor do I want to know. So you don't have a day or a year or no, anything like that? Okay. Not at all. Well, sorry, guys. I thought I would help you with it. Um, do you think that with all that's happening in the world today, um, we're in the last days? Yes and no. I'll preface this because the reality is, is that Acts chapter 2 is... It's implicit in it. It tells us we are in the last days. There's no question. But what the last days mean in the course of human history or the course of creation, we don't know. I mean, human history dates back. I mean, we can go to Egypt. I just came back with a group this week from Egypt, and we were looking at things that were historically documented 5,000 years ago. So if we're talking about the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 taking place 2,000 years ago, we're not even halfway at that point. But Peter is specific when he's quoting uh, the book of Joel and telling us that we are in the last days. But when we oftentimes have the conversation today inside the modern terminology of are we in the last days? We're trying to put the last days and the coming of Christ again inside our own lifetime. 
because for multiple different reasons. And the reality is, is that every generation has thought that. Even from the day that Peter uttered those words to those present on the day of Pentecost, they were believing that Christ was going to come back in their lifetime. You look at how Paul is interacting with the people that he's talking to. He thinks that Christ is coming back in his lifetime. And only when he gets to the end, when we're looking at, for example, 2 Timothy, is he really starting to realize, wait a second, my plans aren't necessarily God's plans. And that's the problem oftentimes with us when we're trying to figure out or or see, all right, when is Jesus coming back? When is the end of days really coming uh, about? Because we want to know something that is not meant for us to know. Only God himself is the one who knows when that time is coming. And it's part of just human nature to want to know and think like God. Because if we look back at the fall of man in uh, Genesis, the, the what entices Adam and Eve is if you partake of this, you will think or you will see things like God sees things. And that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to understand that, yes, we're in the end of days, and yes, Jesus could come back tomorrow, and therefore I'm supposed to live today as such, and then that's it. I'm going to live every day like it's my last. Like this is the last day I can bring the gospel to my coworkers. Like this is the last day that I can bring the gospel to those around me, to my family, to my loved ones. And if I get tomorrow then praise the Lord. But if not, at least I made the best and I did all that God had called me to do in this very day. Yeah, it's a total different way of thinking. You know, I I noticed um, that question, is this the last day, becomes especially more important to those who are older. I I don't think any of us want to die. And so we're hoping he comes back before I have to go through that. I think I'm going to die. I think you're going to. Yeah, I think we probably all are going to die, right? (laughs) But we have to live. This is great. Why do you think, um, like, why are pilgrimages to Israel so important to take? Why is that something that's, it was important to you. You went back multiple times. You charged it. Yeah. Yeah, it changed every part of your life. You went from pastoring to now taking people there and helping them see that. Um, Why do you think that's, such an important thing for a person to go through or pilgrimage of sorts? It changes how we interact with the Bible, with God's Word. Now, the Bible serves as the foundation for everything in our lives because it's through the Bible that we know who Jesus is. We know his life, death, resurrection, ascension, essentially what the gospel message is. And it's through the Old Testament that we find how, the, how God has set inside human uh, uh, history in order to make this all possible. And then it's the New Testament that then tells us and explains us even deeper about who Christ is and what is required of us. And so when you go to the lands of the Bible, you take pilgrimage, for example, to the land of Israel, suddenly the Bible becomes something so vastly different to you. Because when we read it here, it's a land of so far away in a time so long ago that we become disconnected with it. And then we get there inside the land and we actually see see it, the places where it happened, the places where Jesus walked, where Elijah walked, where Moses walked, and suddenly we realize, okay, there's something more to this. There's something different about this. It actually happened. They knew what they were talking about. They were illuminating what God was doing through it, and you go to different biblical texts, and then it changes as we unpack the biblical text, how we interact with that text. It becomes that much deeper. So, for example, if we were to go, and we will when we're in September, we'll go to the caves of En which are out in the, the middle 
middle of nowhere in the wilderness. It's a desolate place, and it's this small oasis by the Dead Sea where no life can be sustained. And that's where David has to go and run from Saul when Saul is actively trying to hunt him down and kill him. And at one point, Saul comes down there looking for him, and David has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he chooses not to. Because that is God's chosen man who's going to be king. He's already been anointed. He's already been told he's going to become king. But he also knows that at this point, even though Saul is trying to kill him, that Saul is still having, has a plan that God has made for his life. And how dare he ever think about raising his hand, not against the, necessarily the individual, but the one who God has anointed for a specific purpose. Now, I take that back to my own life, and I'm sitting there in the desolation of Ein Gedi. What does that tell me about the plans that God has for the lives around me, the people that I don't get along with, the people that I struggle with, that God has a plan for their lives. And if David can do that to someone who's trying to kill him, who has them all the way out in a place where water is scarce, food is scarce, and a place that you make one wrong step, you're going to die, how much more so in my life then can I take seriousness the plan of God for not only me, but for the others around me? And so simple things like that, just small places, you go to three, four places like that in a day, everything is so close together, and the Bible just comes alive and starts speaking to you in a different way. It changes your entire reality. And, and, and now, you, every time you read your Bibles, your minds start going exactly to the place, and you remember it, and you have the landscape and the understanding of this is how it played out. This is what it looked like. I oftentimes tell my students at North Central that when I was growing up, I used to love the Lord of the Rings. And every time I used to read it, I had in my mind what it looked like. Then the movies came out, and it looked like New Zealand from that time on, every time I read it. But that's what going to the lands of the Bible does. It puts into your perspective the exact right picture of what it looked like. From the cave that Jesus was born in to Mount Carmel, where Elijah calls down the power of God uh, against the, the prophets of Baal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Christmas story is really shaped in our imaginations yeah. and then took on tradition and it's nothing no. like what it was. Yeah. Um, when we went there, uh, the Valley of Elah was kind of that for us when you're standing there and you're yeah. standing on Ezekiel, on the tell of Ezekiel, and you can see Gath when you look to the, uh, to the west and you see Hebron. To the, I mean, they were neighboring. So you just don't think like the, it really is the fifth gospel. It, it kind of helps you understand that these were people that were even being raised next to each other, much like the Palestinians and Israel, yeah. Israelis today. And then the road of Jericho, if you were here for more than a book, how many, when you saw the pictures of the road of Jericho when we preached that, did not imagine it that way? I got more comments on that is not how I imagined the road to Jericho because we all thought it was like a Minnesota river with all the trees and green grass, and it's an arid place, you know, going down to Jericho. Um, what, what was that for you? What was the thing that really, when you looked at it, you said, wow, that's not at all like I thought. Do you remember that? Definitely the Jordan River from the beginning. I mean, I expected the Jordan River to be like the Mississippi River or something yeah. like that. Granted, at that time, I had never even seen the Mississippi River. Yeah. So, but I expected it to be this massive thing. And in Missouri, we would just call it a crick. Yeah. So it's... Uh, <laughs> It's a, it was a small thing, but it also then shows the reality of what God is doing when he's having Israel cross over it. And even still, he's, he's, he's protecting them and bringing them over and showing the importance of this area for it. And so the Jordan River is definitely absolutely one. And then another place would also be uh, a place that we look out onto what's called the Evangelical Triangle, um, where we see about 90% of Jesus's ministry takes place all within eyeshot of each other in between the cities of Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. 
uh, and to understand the impact that the gospel has worldwide in a place that you could walk from one side to the other in a matter of hours, if that, um, just shows the greatness of God's plan that anything I could plan up or dream for the spread of the gospel could never match that. Yeah. Yeah, to stand in places where the, the Sermon on Mount could have happened, mm -hmm. where feeding 5,000 people and you're standing looking, and it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, one of the things I think as Christians we do is um, we forget that global history is God's history. And for a lot of Christians, they think they like to box in God in their biblical history as if God only worked within Israel and that, that the only people on the planet that were God people were Abraham's descendants mm -hmm. and there were, God only worked within this one out of the, all the other people on the planet. It was just there. And then you read in Genesis, you, you read about Melchizedek mm -hmm. and, and he's called a priest of God. It makes you realize like he wasn't, he was Abraham's a priest that Abraham honored and he tithed to, but this is a priest of God, meaning there were other followers of God at the time, mm -hmm. and whether through, you know, we have recorded history in the Bible uh, that, that God gives us of how Jesus came and the promise comes, and it's recorded, but it would be foolish to think that there wasn't other things God was doing. It kind of tell us about that. A and, and, and the diaspora, a little bit about yeah, that. As yeah, well. absolutely. What we see, even from the very beginning of the Old Testament narrative, that God is raising up and interacting through human history in order Order to bring his plans about. So for example, he rises Egypt up to be a powerful empire. Why? So that in a time of need, Abraham, Jacob, they have a place to go when there's nothing, there's nothing to eat, no food inside the land of Canaan. And as we see with the, the days when Jacob brings his sons into Egypt, it becomes the place where Israel falls into captivity, but it also becomes a place where they cry out to God and God establishes a new relationship that helps them be established inside the land so much greater than anything they probably could have done on their own. Then you move even farther out and you see times inside the Old Testament where you have the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, then the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is the establishment, like you said, of what's called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Israelite or the Jewish people. And they go out all over. They go to Alexandria, Egypt. They go to um, Turkey, to Greece, to Italy. And there, they're imparting their, their communities into pagan world. And they're adapt. They're not adapting. The world is adapting certain understandings of who they are. We find Greek texts that tell us about how hungry Greek scholars were to understand who God was because of the influence. But more importantly, they're establishing places of worship. They're establishing the synagogues. And that becomes huge when we look at what Paul is doing and the other missionaries inside the first century when they're first bringing the gospel out of the land of Israel. Where's the place that they go to be able to preach the gospel? They go to the synagogue because if you're a Jewish male inside the first century that can read the Torah, you can read the Bible, then you're allowed to preach and teach and expand upon it. And so it gives Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, John Mark, it gives them an opportunity to go and preach the gospel in a way that wasn't possible a few hundred years earlier. Even more so, we look at pagan empires like the Roman Empire, where God is supernaturally interacting with what's going on in their history to create a way for his gospel to spread in a way that wouldn't have been possible years earlier. We find the state 
statement that's made about Jesus in Galatians, that he comes in the fullness of time. And the fullness of time means that the world is at the most prepared point that God has planned for them for the spread of the gospel in the way that he desires it. And so the Roman Empire, just a few years before Jesus comes on the scene, enters into a time called the Pax Romana, the time of Roman peace. And when you've got no enemies to fight and you've got a standing military, you've got to find something for them to do. And so what the Romans start doing is they eradicate piracy in the Mediterranean. They create a Roman system, a road system for the Roman roads that all roads lead to Rome. And then they establish a postal system. Now we look at the New Testament and how the gospel spreads. How does Paul and the others bring the gospel about? They travel by foot through the lands of Turkey. They travel by sea to Cyprus and along the coasts and Corinth and Ephesus and these major port cities where the gospel can spread out massively from there. And how is Paul communicating with the churches to give us the doctrine that we have to this day? He's writing them letters. All of that wasn't possible even a hundred years before Paul. But God used a pagan empire. He used the history of mankind to then make his plan known. And then even more so, he does that to this very day because Romans 1 tells us the reality that God makes himself known by everything around us, specifically by human history and what's going on. And mankind is fascinated with history. We want to know where we come from. The reason why, for example, we call it the Dark Ages in the medieval times is that we lost part of our history and everybody was scared. Nobody knew where we developed from. And so here we have a reality that we see human history developing. And if we look at it in connection with the Bible and we understand it with a mindset of looking at where's God's kingdom being built, how is God's plan being enacted in every step of history from creation until now, we can see God is evident clearly making his kingdom built and making his name known. Yeah, that, that's pretty exceptional um, when you think about it. Um, like how, how when Jesus comes, he dies, he's resurrected, and then you have Paul. Where is he going to go? There's these pagan places. Well, what, is it four to six hundred years? Yeah, for the where, time of silence. Yeah, yeah. time of silence where we have the last writings in the Old Testament where the New Testament. And it's like, what was God doing? Like God must not, he must have been taking a nap. You know, he was tired. It was a lot of work. And he was going to have Jesus come on the scene. So God took him. God wasn't, he was preparing the world for the coming of the Savior. By sending the Jewish people, dispersing them. Remember, Jeremiah, all the prophets were saying, no, God's going to save us. God's going to save us. God's going to save us. And God comes to Jeremiah and says, all of those people that say that I'm going to keep you, I'm gonna, you're going to win and all they're lying. They're not hearing from me. And, and then he tells Jeremiah, you're going to go into captivity, and I want you to flourish where you're going. He was, what he was saying was, now is the time we're going to start preparing for the Messiah. This, like, God, is, God doesn't have a, a problem with logistics. Like, they thought they were being punished, really, in it because they didn't honor their parents and they didn't Sabbath like they were supposed to. And God was using their disobedience to actually bring about the Savior who would save them from it. Because if Paul would have went into a pagan city, where would he have landed? But because all of the Jewish people were in those cities, they formed synagogues. And those became the churches that Paul would go to preach to. 
And from those synagogues and those people who had had credibility in those synagogues, he was able to interact even with the unbelievers and the pagans around them because of the relationships that were already formed over time. And when they would get, when some of the Jews would get, it's, it's what we're going to see in, in the fall when we go to Turkey. We're going to film for our small group series, The Seven Churches of Turkey, and you're going to see this played out. It's pretty incredible. But before we, before we can be done, this, and, and we're trying to get this in too. There's this thing going on in Israel right now. You might have heard about it with Hamas. A war going on over there. And it seems like it never ends. Um, what's going on? You know, you have pro-Hamas uh, support, which people, it's hard to know why mm-hmm. people do that. But it, like I said earlier, if you don't have eyes to see or ear, you, it's not going to make sense to you. And this word genocide is coming up a lot. And yet, the Arab world has tried to, you know, river to the sea, you brought that up, is essentially genocide, uh, saying we'll wipe out a whole people group. Um, What's going on in Israel between the Jews and the Palestinians? So really what we're looking at in the modern sense is something that is a post-World War II reality. When we look at the land that we call Israel today, um, following World War I and the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the place was known as British Mandate on Palestine. The British took control of that area right there. The French took Lebanon, Syria, and they kind of just divided it up. And the British at that point had said, hey, this is the Jewish homeland. It has been for 2,000 plus years. Since the Romans kicked them out, they just haven't been able to live there sense. Why do, now that we control it, why don't they return back to it as they should? And you didn't have a whole lot of movement to that until a few years later when you start having the rise of Nazi Germany and the extermination of six and a half million Jews where the Jewish people realized that, hey, the world hates us. And we'll get on why they hate them in a second, but the world hates us. We need to go somewhere where we have safety, where we can live as one body and united, where if the world decides that it's going to do that again, then we, can, we have a chance at it. And so they take the British up on that offer, and they go back to the land that is ancestral, ancestrally theirs. And so then you have people that are already living there that have moved in 700, 600 years prior um, from uh, places like Saudi Arabia, um, Kuwait, Iran, Iraq, places like that that have established in the land. And the UN says, okay, you're all moving in here and you have people that are living here. What we'll do is we'll create two states because ultimately this belongs to the British. They can decide what to do. How about we have a Jewish state and a state for those who identify as Palestinians because they live under British mandate Palestine. I'll note there has never been a country by the name of Palestine ever once in the history of mankind. And I think that's been somewhat misrepresented oh, and gotten people as if there was a country. There has never been a Palestine. Palestine, no, ever. Never, yeah. never. It goes from the Ottoman Empire to uh, British Mandate Palestine to the nation of Israel. And so Israel, knowing that they don't have any other option, they go back to Europe, they risk another Holocaust again. Um, anti-Semitism is, is clearly huge in Europe, and they say, we'll take whatever you give us. You give us the horrible land, you give us the Negev, the desert, we'll figure out a way to live there and we'll make it happen. And the Palestinian uh, people who are given this option, they say, no, we want it all. And civil and war breaks out, and Israel comes out on top and establishes the state of Israel. And ever since then, it has become a point of uh, a point for the uh, surrounding Muslim countries to basically say, okay, we do not believe that Israel or the Jewish people should exist, and therefore we're going to use this situation and these people group who live there as our basically proxy in order to try to wipe out and eliminate Israel. But here's the reality with all of this. None of that should surprise us. Because the reality with this is that this is not something that started in the 1940s. 
This didn't start after World War II. This didn't even start after World War I. This started at the foundation of the time when God told Abraham that I promise your children this land. Why is that? Because the world is constantly in its fallen state trying to thwart the plans of God. Because if it can thwart the plans of God and disprove the plans of God, then it disproves God. And that's what the enemy desires to do above all else. And one of the ways to do that is to remove God's promise from his people. Either remove the people, which they tried in the 1940s and failed, or we remove them from God's promise and remove them from the land itself. And here's the reality of it, is that there's nothing. The nations can rage against God. There is nothing that they can do to thwart his plan. And we're watching that happen right in front of our very eyes. I mean, we're seeing it is clear, if it's not clear now, then it should be, that you have anti-Semitism on the rise all throughout the world. Like you said, you have this chant that I even heard just two days ago in downtown Minneapolis of to the river to the sea. That is calling for the annihilation of the Jewish people in between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, the annihilation of the Jewish state. Why? Because if we annihilate them, we annihilate this nation, we annihilate God's promise, and therefore God is not in control. Yeah, it's not a promise-keeping God. Exactly it. Yeah. And so at the heart of this all, that's what it is. But if we look back at the history of all those who have stood up and fought against God and God's people, where are they? Where are the Romans? Where are the Babylonians? Where are the Assyrians? The Jewish people are still here. God's people, God's promise is still here. Where is everybody else? And this should give us as believers, an even firmer foundation on the truths of God's promise. That now we're watching the, the world rise up against God's promise, and God is still reigning supreme. Israel's not going anywhere. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Amen. It yeah. might have a different face. But. I, you know, it reminds me of the soldier that uh, I saw on the, on the news, a, a Jewish soldier. Uh, they asked him a question about what he thought about Hezbollah or, or the people, and he says, you know, We've been attacked by all kinds of people, and they're all in the book, but we're still here. <laughs> that should give you encouragement of the promises of God in your life. There ain't an enemy on the planet. There isn't a single demon on, uh, operating in the world that can change the promises of God in our life. Isn't it right? You know, and you look at it, and, and it's, it's insane how they're saying that Israel's participating in genocide when uh, they're trying to wipe Israel out for hundreds of years, and nobody's getting irate about that. As believers in Christ, um, you, you, have, you have to just recognize that there's just some people that aren't going to see and they're not going to hear. And I would have liked to have gotten into that a little bit more. We're out of time and we need to go to the next campus. But I want to encourage you to pray for the people of Israel. Not, not because um, they need your help from being defeated because God's going to take care of that. But because they need to know Jesus. And, and come to that place and pray that God does that. And we're going to go to Israel um, we have a trip planned in September, and many of you are thinking, well, I'm not going to Israel. This is, I'm, something might happen to me. Well, Jeremy's actually going to be meeting with the government in Israel here in a little while, and um, we're not going there if, it's, if there's that kind of danger. We'll postpone the trip, but at least you'll be already going. Like, I, if you felt like, man, I really need to go, because everybody talks about how it ignites a fire in you for the Word of God. 
Jeremy's perfect example of that. You ask anybody who went with us uh, when we went last time, and they'll tell you when they read now, the scripture just comes off the page because it truly is the fifth gospel. And um, I felt like the Lord really put it in my heart as, as a pastor. If you were pastor, he would have put it on your heart. That, that I needed to encourage the people that are here to pilgrimage. That somehow we've made that an Islamic thing. We've made that uh, another type of thing, another religion thing. No, no, God's really calling us to do that. Helena, who is Constantine's mother pilgrimage back to the place and it just strengthened her faith and and I want to encourage you that that this is an opportunity to do that and I think God's going to make a way to provide for you to do that and be a part of that okay does that sound good did you enjoy this this morning